I was reminded this past week of a line from the refrain, really, from the book of Judges that goes this way, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The reason that that was brought to my mind was because of something I read about a gentleman by the name of George Bishop. George Bishop was a political science professor at the University of Cincinnati back in the 70s and 80s, and he conducted a rather interesting experiment. I'll read you this excerpt of the piece that tells you about this. In a series of surveys, Bishop asked a sample of people their opinion on whether the Public Affairs Act of 1975 should be repealed. Roughly a third of respondents offered a firm opinion one way or another. This was suspicious enough. A whole third of Americans knew enough about the Public Affairs Act to have an opinion on it? But there was another reason to doubt the results. There was no such thing as the Public Affairs Act of 1975. It was an invention only for the purposes of the poll, but people felt compelled to weigh in anyway. Now, Bishop, the uh, guy behind that experiment, called such responses pseudo-opinions, pseudo-opinions. And I don't think it's much of a stretch today to say that our culture is awash with pseudo-opinions. It's in the very air we breathe, which you know means that we are all affected by that. It's not just that we are having that breathed out upon us like secondhand smoke, but we are inhaling that. We, we have a lot of pseudo-opinions ourselves on a lot of things, more so than we know. And, and the, the thing is, is that we need to learn to think carefully and critically about critical matters, not just about policy issues, you know, the, the uh, Public Affairs Act of whatever year, but about spiritual issues most especially spiritual issues. Jesus would have his disciples, his followers, to be discerning, to not just be informed, but to be wise, to be wise. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, as I said earlier in the, as we were beginning the service, uh, we, this is the third part in a four-part series on the spiritual gifts. Uh, A few weeks ago, we began with 1 Peter 4. Uh, That was part one. Part two was Ephesians 4. Uh, We're now in Romans 12. Next week, the plan is to be in 1 Corinthians 12, all of these letting these different authors speak to this particular issue on the the question of spiritual gifts. What are they? How are they to be understood and and to be uh, embraced in our day? Romans chapter 12, we are looking at verses uh, 3 through 8, but reading verses 1 through 8. We can't really get to verse 3 unless we've read the the two verses that precede it. So if you're trying to find Romans, that's after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, after Acts, Romans. Romans is the first of the letters that we have in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray for a moment together. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this letter uh, there to the church in Rome uh, those many years ago. We thank you for your work there in that, um, in that capital and what took place there within the empire because of that. Um, and uh, thank you for uh, your work in, the, in and through the life of the Apostle Paul, beginning first within his heart, um, helping him to see, to see that he was blind, uh, literally and metaphorically, there on that road to Damascus, and then you gave him sight. Uh, we thank you. Thank you for the ways in which he is unpacking here the implications of the gospel of grace for us today. And we ask, oh, we plead with you to please have mercy. Have mercy, oh, that you would help us to see some more yet of these implications for us. As we are continuing in this series on the spiritual gifts, uh, we know that that can be a, a trigger uh, for a lot of different ideas, a lot of different responses. Uh, some uh, going in one direction and some going in another. A few of us, if any, are a blank slate when it comes to that topic. We ask that you would conform our minds and hearts to what we see in the Scriptures. We pray in your name. Amen. So let me uh, put a scenario in front of you. Imagine, imagine if you will, a wealthy graduate of a prestigious university decides that she wants to give this um, astonishing work of art to her alma mater. It's a massive piece of art. It's uh, beautiful to behold, priceless in its value. The only condition that she's putting upon the trustees of this university to in, the, in receiving this fantastic gift is that it be displayed there uh, in the main hall, in the main hall of the university. Well, the trustees hear that, and they think, well, that's not a problem. We can surely find a way to do that. And so they, they take said gift, and they, then they go to the main hall, and they begin to look around. And then they begin to realize maybe this is a bigger deal than they thought. Because they, they, they look over here, and what they thought initially, before they actually looked at it, they thought was going to be a perfect spot. Well, that blocks that main window. We can't, we can't do that. That ruins the, the light there. And, and, and that, we'll put it in there, interrupts the, the flow of traffic through, through the room. So that, that's, that, that's not going to work. And to put it over there detracts from this. And to put it over there, well, that's just too tight. And they go, and then they realize the worst problem of all, the dang thing's too big. This, it's too big. The ceiling's not high enough. And so they realize that if they're going to display this phenomenal work of art that's been given to them, 
they're going to have to knock down the whole building and rebuild it, this new structure with this work of art as the centerpiece of it all. My friends, that is the disruption that the gospel of grace, rightly heard, should bring to our lives. That is the disruption that the coming of the kingdom should bring to those who hear this message. It is not something that can just be tagged on to the old system. It's not an add-on. It's not an appendix. It's not a peripheral. It takes center stage. It's, it's not, an old, it's not a, something new added to the old system. It's a whole new system indeed. It's a, it brings a complete, utter transformation of worldview, of how we see, of how we think, of how we act, of how we live. That's what Paul's getting at here at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. As he's looking back on, on the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, and the wonders, the, the vistas, if you will, of the, the doctrine, the gospel of, of grace, the hope that we have of a Savior who has come and has lived and died in our stead, in looking at the vista, and looking at the wonder of all of that, when he moves then to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he says that the only response to that, the only appropriate response to that, is a yielding of the whole of ourselves to this God and the pursuit of a life of holiness for however many days that we have on this earth. That's what he says is the only appropriate response to that news, a yielding of the whole of ourselves to this God and a pursuit and a growth of, of life of holiness for however many days that he gives us on this planet. Now, what would that look like? How might that be fleshed out? What would be among the first things that Paul would say would come as an implication, a repercussion, an application of these things? Well, like he has, like we have to guess, he tells us there in verses 3 through 8, the first response to the gospel is to think anew about the church. Let's say that again. It needs to be said again and again and again, maybe for the next 30 minutes, like a mantra. The first response to the gospel is to think anew about the church. How so? How so? In these three ways, very clear what Paul lays out here. Thinking anew first about ourselves. Secondly, thinking anew about one another. Alluded to that in the quotes we read at the beginning of the service. And thirdly, thinking anew about our gifts, how we engage, how this works together. So thinking anew, thinking anew about the church. That's the, the, the first response to the gospel. It means thinking anew about ourselves and one another, about our gifts. So let's look at these things in turn. The first thing, thinking anew about ourselves. You see that in verse 3, for by the grace of 4, he's, you know, bridging on what he's just said, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This threefold repetition, actually in the Greek it's fourfold, of this idea of thinking and thinking anew, thinking rightly. Clearly, Paul is trying to emphasize something. He's really stressing something lest we, we miss it. And so he is urging us to think anew about ourselves, and he throws immediately down a caution. 
a caution negatively and positively. Negatively. We are not to think too much of ourselves. Not to self, as we oftentimes do, self-elevate. Implied in that actually is also this, not to think too little of ourselves. We might be in, uh, inclined to self, not self-elevation, but self-denigration. You see, both, you know what those two things have in common? They both are obsessed with self. They're not so different. Self-elevation, self-denigration, they're all about you. They're all about me. And Paul is saying, don't go there. That's not an appropriate response. That's not the way to understand ourselves. Well, okay, fine. How then are we to think of ourselves? Well, he says, says it here with sober judgment, meaning with a reasonableness, with a sensibility, grounded in something. Well, what would that be? Well, we don't have to guess on that at all. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Well, what, what would that be, this measure of our faith is something, it's objective, it's outside of us that we have embraced. That's what he's, it's something, whatever it is, it's something that's outside of us that we have embraced. Well, what would that be? The gospel. The hope of the gospel. The Savior who has come, who has lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die and all in our place. And the hope of that and laying hold of that is the grounding, is the basis for right thinking about ourselves. And that has a transformative effect upon the heart. It is pride-crushing. It is absolutely pride-crushing, and yet at the same time, here's the beautiful admixture of the two, pride-crushing and deeply emboldening and ennobling at the same time. Because you can look to Jesus and you can look at the cross and see him hanging there. And at the one hand, you have to recognize, my sin put him there. But at the same time, his love for me put him there. And do you see how it does the two things at the same time? It crushes the pride and emboldens and ennobles with love. And that is a sanity restorer. That is gives us our spiritual equilibrium. That's what it means, as Paul says here, is to think of ourselves with sober judgment. It's what it means to think anew about ourselves, applying the gospel, responding to the gospel, thinking anew about ourselves. Let's talk about pride for just a moment. Uh, one of the mainstays of story time with our children through the years was picking up and reading through an anthology of the frog and toad stories. I don't know how many of you are familiar with those uh, I'm not going to do the voices. I could. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I won't. Frog is the eternal, happy, glass-half-full optimist. Frog, uh, toad, on the other hand, fr toad, on the other hand, is the grumpy, glass-half-empty pessimist. And there's this jewel of a story. They're all jewels. But there's a jewel of a story within the anthology called The Swim. And here's the plot. It goes like this. Frog and Toad go down to the river, and they're going to have a swim. But Toad refuses to come out of the water because he doesn't want anyone to see how silly he looks in his bathing suit. I know, a toad in his bathing suit, but stay with me. <laughs> all the woodland creatures get wind of this, and they come down to the riverside because they want to see this goofy-looking toad in his bathing suit. They've, you know, they've spread the 
you know, through the woods. And he stays. He refuses to come out. And he stays there all day long until the poor guy, he's an amphibian, before he, he finally gets too cold. And he stays. He, well, he doesn't stay anywhere. He gets out of the water. And everyone laughs. And Toad acknowledges, yes, I do look ridiculous. And then he goes home. And you ask, what's the point of that? You know what that story is about? Pride. That story is about pride, what it looks like and what it does. What it looks like and what it does. Pride, you may know, is the root of the seven deadly sins, the worst of them all. It's where it all begins. It's our abiding, ever-present enemy, deeply, deeply rooted within mine and your hearts. And that, my friends, is why we have to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Daily. That we would not be crippled in that way by pride. It's the only thing that can restore that spiritual equilibrium. It's the only thing that gives us and helps us to maintain any sense of balance whatsoever in our understanding of who we are. The first response to the gospel is to think anew about the church, and that begins with thinking anew about ourselves. That's the first thing. But that takes us into the second thing, and it's not just thinking anew about ourselves, but thinking anew about one another and we see that as we bridge into verse 4. 4, so now he's you know, backing up what he's just said. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul is putting here before us this brilliant, brilliant image of the church as like a body. It's like a body, which implies these three things, and they come up very clearly, these three elements within any body that have to be there for it by definition to be a body, these three things, unity, diversity, and mutuality. No body, by definition, cannot exist without those three things, unity, diversity, and mutuality. Unity, we are one. We are a whole. We cannot understand ourselves as followers of Jesus rightly without understanding ourselves to be part of a oneness, the larger body. And this is not something that we aspire to. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were looking at Ephesians 4. This is not something we aspire to. It's not something we create. It's not a noble idea or a grand vision. It's rather something we live out of. It's already been done by God the Spirit. We are living out this present reality now that there is a oneness to us to us as the church, as, as the body, even if you can't see it, even if you can't feel it, even if you don't believe it. I hate to tell you, but even if you don't believe it, doesn't make it untrue. It just means you're wrong. A body, by definition, is made up of unity. The second thing is made up of diversity. And Paul speaks to that here as well, where there are many members this is not some monstrosity, some blob like out of a 50s science fiction movie. 
you know, undifferentiated in the parts. This is not a, a oneness like Eastern myth and religions would have you to believe. This is a oneness, but yet at the same time, diverse members, many, many members with different functions. Why? Because they have unique roles. They have unique parts and parts to play. And in that comes the third part, mutuality, a belonging. Each and every member is a, should hear, should hear the larger whole say to them, you belong here. You are part of us. And each member should say to the larger whole, I belong with you. That mutuality of belonging and also at the same time interdependency. You can't make it on your own. Like a coal pulled out of the larger fire will just die. Like a branch pulled off of a tree will just die. Doesn't, it's just the organicness nature of these things is the way it is. We, we're a part of one another and we need one another. And this is what it means to think anew about one another which, of course, cuts directly against the grain of our, so much of our understanding and our ways of going. We, are, we, we, in the 21st century West, are so much about rugged individualism and being the self-made man or woman, which when you think about it is an oxymoron. Just think about it. Just, you know, go home and think about it. The Lone Ranger is a grand myth, but my friends, you need to hear me say, you cannot be a Lone Ranger and a disciple of Jesus at the same time. You need to make up your mind. They are mutually exclusive things. To be the Lone Ranger and a disciple of Jesus are mutually exclusive things, and there's no overlap between. It's a grand vision. It's a grand myth. Oh, I know. I know. I grew up on the stories, too. You know, the, the surviving Texas Ranger, the, the ambushed guys down there in that canyon, and he survives, and he goes on to restore justice and stand for things according to his grand code in the Old West and high silver away. It's a great vision and a lousy picture for the church. It's toxic. It's unbiblical. It's unbiblical. It may be very American, but it is unbiblical. The self-made man or woman, the lone ranger, it won't square with what you see in the scriptures. You know the means of grace? Some of you may be familiar with that term. The means of grace is the traditional way of referring to the, the, the ways, the instruments, if you will, that the Lord takes in his hands to grow us and mature us in the faith, to deepen our understanding of grace and our need of him and how you supplied that, and hence the means of grace, not saving grace, but sanctifying, making us more like Jesus, grace. It's what the term means. Some of the things that are oftentimes listed in uh, the catalog, if you will, of the means of grace would be time in prayer, yes, to be sure. Time in the Word, yes, to be sure. The sacraments regularly celebrated, yes, to be sure. Church discipline is one that's oftentimes added in there. So is the church itself. So is being a member 
a living member of the living body of Jesus. That, too, is a means of grace. Whereas over time, slowly but surely, over time, as we do life together and experience this unity and diversity and mutuality together, which you can't do like on your own. You can't experience unity and diversity and mutuality at home. We become more like Jesus. That's his intent. That's his intent to make us more like himself through his church. So part of the first response to the gospel, again, is to think aright anew about the church, and that begins with thinking aright about, anew about ourselves and thinking aright and anew about one another, which then takes us to the third point. And we see that here as well as we pick up in verses 6 through 8, thinking anew about our gifts. Thinking anew about our gifts. Where does this go? As the body life is fleshed out and, and, and lived out. Well, Paul speaks to this in verses, again, 6 to 8. Having gifts. So he's, it's just an assumption that Paul is making here. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The prophecy in proportion to our faith of service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy cheerfulness. Two things. These are gifts intentionally distributed, meant to be put to use. Intentionally distributed and meant to be put to use. Intentionally distributed, meaning not haphazard, not random, purposeful. This is everything Jesus does. Purposefulness. These gifts are given, it says here, freely by the grace of God, by the mercy of God to each one. Not waiting for another age to come, but now, present is what Paul is speaking of, now, now, freely given to each and every one. There's categories, if you want to look at these seven gifts in this way, you can see speaking gifts, more oriented in that direction. Or you could say others more of a serving nature in that direction. Uh, maybe you could put it this way. Some are more of a, in a public manifestation and others in a little less so, or maybe a little bit more behind the scenes. But in any case, they're intentionally distributed. No mistakes whatsoever does the Lord make in how he um, distributes the gifts that he has given to us. And they are meant for what? Meant to be put to use. Meant to be put to use. Now, these particular gifts that we see here, again, there are seven. And as I've said over the last few weeks, every one of these gift lists in these four passages that, that we see in the New Testament, whether it's 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, or Romans 12, or 1 Corinthians 12, every one of the lists are different, which tells us that not a one of them is exhaustive. There's a lot of overlap. Some are here, some are there, some are in only one place. And uh, that, that's somewhat instructive. You see different orders there. So we really should never be thinking of, you know, one strictly speaking of, well, that's the one that, you know, is more important and that, that kind of thing. Um, I recognize, so it's worth saying something here real quickly, the first one, prophecy, in this list probably, whoop, you know, a little flag there, a little alert, you know, wondering what, what that's about. Uh, in the New Testament era, understand that in the context in, in Paul here in Romans 12 would seem to be saying that in the New Testament era, this is a different thing 
than the level of foretelling and forthtelling that you see in the Old Testament era. In the New Testament era, the prophet, whatever they, he or she said, needed to be weighed against the authoritative revelation of the Bible. They stood under the authority of the apostolic revelation. So it had to be checked. It had to, whatever they said had to be submitted to that. And whatever manifestation that would be true today still has to be done the same way, submitted to under the authority of Scripture, the once-for-all revelation that we have here. A lot more I could say, just, just, just stop with, with that. The main point being that these gifts are meant to be put to use. They're not to be, meant to be buried but to be worked, to be discovered and worked, put to use, put into practice. Or you put it this way in terms of, you know, Paul doesn't, you'll note this, doesn't just list the seven, but it says how each one should be used, the manner in which it should be used. And one commentator I read this past week put it this way, they should be utilized conscientiously for the common good. So whatever the gift is, public, private, speaking, serving, whatever, utilized conscientiously for the common good. It's the only reason they've been given, and it's the only way they're to be lived out and worked out. We see things along those lines all the time in everyday life. We see labels that, that say, use only as directed, right? You see that on prescription medication, use only as directed. You see it on power tools, right? Use only as directed. That's why you don't use a snowblower in your living room. Um, use only as directed. And, you know, when we do that, the, 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 take the right thing in the right way, it's a thing of tremendous help. But when you take the right thing in the wrong way, it can bring tremendous harm. So these gifts have to be used in the, the right way. Way. It's the caution that Paul is, is giving here, well, which then I think presents some questions to us that are worth thinking about. How are we thinking about these things? I mean, the challenge is, right? The challenge is that the first immediate response, as we see here in Romans 12, to the gospel is to think anew about the church, to think anew about ourselves, to think anew about one another, to think anew about our, our gifts. Well, how are we thinking this morning? You know, if, this, if the straight edge, if the plumb line is, are these passages, how does our thinking square up against that? That's worth contemplating. That's worth wrestling with. Let me just, just be very plain. Have you seriously dealt with the fact, not the possibility, the fact that if you are a disciple of Jesus, you have been gifted? Are you dealing with that fact? And have you begun to wrestle with the implications of that in terms of how you have been, not just that you have been gifted, but how you have been gifted and the implications of that for where you are in his sovereign plan as a member of this body and even more broadly a member of his kingdom? Those are questions that not just could be asked, but that must be asked as we think about passages such as this. Again, 
Paul so very clearly here in Romans 12 is saying the first response to the gospel is to think anew about the church. Some of you know, last week we were visiting with our grandson. Uh, little Wayland, of course, is a, a delight. He is a bundle of energy. Um, he loves to play. He loves to toddle. He's a year old. He loves to climb stairs. Oh, boy. Uh, he loves to get into things. He also loves to, to, to read. Well, okay, he's bright, but be read too. And, and one of the books that I read, had the opportunity, sweet opportunity to read repeatedly to him, was Eric Carle's classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Plotline. You have this little caterpillar who munches his way through a variety of foodstuffs until the, the, towards the end of the book where he pupates and then transforms, becomes, caterpillar, butterfly. You take the book and you flap like that. Uh, it's, it's awesome. Um, so I was, I was encouraged, intrigued to learn, uh, reading this week, about the very hungry caterpillar, that uh, it, was, it has been endorsed by the Royal Entomological Society, I guess being accurate to all things bugs, um, it has won numerous awards through the years. Uh, since it was published in 1969, has sold over 50 million copies, averaging about one sale a minute since 1969. That's a lot of books. So it's a classic. It's also our story. It's also our story as followers of Jesus. And that's what the gospel is telling us. The newness involved, new creature, the transformation, the upending of the worldview. Whether you believe this or not, again, doesn't change the facts. For the believer in Jesus, your metamorphosis is as real as that caterpillar having been transformed into the butterfly. That's what Paul is saying here. It's the implications of you shift from Romans 1 to 11 to 12 to 16. That's what the apostle Paul is saying. Everything has changed. It is simply not enough to think you're going to fit that painting into that old room. That whole thing's got to be torn down, rebuilt, so that painting can be, get the proper attention as the centerpiece it deserves because that's the kingdom. And that's the coming of the gospel message and its implications for us. So again, that's why Paul says, all of this in mind, the first response, the best response, where we begin is to think anew, think aright about the church, ourselves, one another, our gifts. Let me say one last thing about that spiritual gift inventory because it bridges right out of this. It's an incredibly practical way of running with this. I cannot encourage you to take enough, to take the time, I cannot encourage you enough to take the time to go onto our website, go onto the Facebook page. You can do it online or you can print it out however you want to do it and ask the Lord, go to him in prayer and ask him to reveal, take this tool, this simple tool to help you understand how he's wired you, what it means to serve to serve more efficiently, more effectively in the church and within the larger kingdom.
And then after you've taken the time to do that, send it in that we might be better able to explore these things together. Oh my goodness, who has he made us to be? What does he have in mind for us? Let's run with this. Let's not just talk about this. Let's go. I'm going to close us in prayer. There's a prayer there in your quotes and notes from Ray Ortland Jr. And what I would like to do is for us to read this together corporately as a prayer. It's the third one in your quotes and notes from his book, A Passion for God. And I would like you to pray aloud with me as we close this part of the service before we shift towards the tithes and offerings. Pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, if you are willing to own the church as yours, how can I stand aloof? If you are active within it, how can I withhold involvement? I thrill to the vision of your church as that holy Catholic army marching through history triumphant over her foes, but the particular churches I see around me hardly match that glorious vision, and a streak of pride runs deep within me, choking fellowship at its root. Forgive me, Lord, along with the spiritual gift you have graciously given me, impart to me as well the humility to put that gift to work in fruitful partnership with the ministry of my church. In your holy name, amen. Amen indeed. If I may ask our...